Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 6, 27 to 36, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Loving Your Enemies. Most of us are aware of Jesus' command to love our enemies. And when we think of it, it seems more than is possible. You know, it is great as an ideal, but how in the world are we to do such a thing? And if you are by chance wondering who your enemies are, well, they're the ones who hate you. Simple as that. I know sometimes those who hate us do us damage. They do us physical harm, but harm comes in a variety of packages. I know of those who are constantly under the threat of legal action, just enough threat to make sure that, you know, that person has to hire a lawyer to defend themselves. And still others make other threats. Others inflict financial harm. Still others gossip and tell stories meant to harm the reputation of someone or to turn friends against someone or even to have them fired from their jobs. False accusation can even have someone imprisoned. Harm does come in a variety of ways, and physical violence is but one form. And in truth, hatred is the root cause of all of it. Our enemies are those who hate us. And since it's undoubtedly true, how can Jesus' teaching really make sense? A great many rabbis of Jesus' day, especially the scribes, were teaching the opposite of Jesus. They began by quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And from that, they taught that neighbor love was what God commanded. And so they taught, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Listen to Jesus' remarkable teaching. Luke 6, 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? for even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful." Let's begin by understanding the context of this teaching. Jesus has just selected his 12 apostles, and as he comes down from the mountain, a great multitude is waiting for him, and he will heal those who touch him, and then he begins to teach them. So who's in the crowd? Well, there are the 12 apostles, of course, and also there are the many of his disciples, his dedicated followers, but then there are also others who have any number of motivations for being there. And in Luke 6, verse 20, it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, which seems to indicate that a great part of his remarks are directed towards them. He offers four blessings, then four woes, to those who reject the values of the kingdom. And of particular interest to us today is the fourth blessing and the fourth woe. 
The fourth blessing is, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and when they revile you. Ha, those are the enemies of the disciples. And then the fourth, woe. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. And the plain teaching of Jesus is that his followers are serious about his gospel, and so they're going to have enemies. See, I'm reminded of the poem by Charles McKay, and here's what he wrote. You have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He was mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure. Must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You know, indeed, our Savior had his enemies. The martyrs, you know, the ones we admire, they had enemies. I mean, how else would they have been martyred? And those of us who have not been martyred but have refused to budge an inch on the truthfulness of the teaching of Jesus, we also have enemies. On a personal note, I know I do. And so I think it is probably best to interpret and apply Jesus' teaching of love for enemies directly to his disciples who have given themselves to the gospel and to serving Christ. Jesus is assuming that his followers will have had enemies. Notice the outline of the teaching. First, he gives the basic command, and second, he applies the command to a number of practical areas. And then third, Jesus explains why his command is reasonable. This is his defense of asking something so great of his followers. So let's follow through the outline. First, the command itself, which is found in verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Those of you who know something about Hebrew parallelism will know that typically one phrase follows another and each phrase repeats the same thing again. But with each repetition, it's a little different because it further explains what's meant. So, love for enemies, that's the basic command. And then the command is repeated three more times, but with each repetition, an explanation is offered of the first and basic command. And so, love your enemies, and then do good to those who hate you, and then again, bless those who curse you. And once more, pray for those who abuse you, and all of that is what is meant to love your enemies. Now, you'll notice there's nothing here about how we feel about our enemies. I mean, for those of us who say, look, I can't get myself to feel loving toward those who have done harm to me. Well, the answer is Jesus is not talking about your feelings. He's talking about your actions. So let's see if we can define the command. Love your enemies. You should express love for those who seek to harm you. Don't harm them. Don't plot revenge. Don't look to get back. Don't seek to slander them in the way that they've slandered you. Love them. And then when asked what it is you're supposed to do, notice the answer. First, do good to them who hate you. That is to say, whenever it's in your power, you will bless, you'll be generous, you'll be gracious. Now, it may not always be in your power to do good, but whenever the opportunity arises, do good. You know, second, bless those who curse you. Now, curse is a statement that your enemy is going to make that is meant to cause injury or harm. You know, gossiping is but one example of a curse, so is slander. But sometimes a curse is formal. You know, in some circles, a curse is thought to have spiritual power. You know, many of us have heard the kind of curses that people offer. Go to hell, they say. It's their wish that you would spend eternity in torment. You know, other curses are simply words of profanity. Now, I won't repeat them, but we all know what they are. 
And when you're cursed, simply respond with a word of blessing, which is a word of kindness. Ask God to bestow some favor on them so that they might yet come to the place where they also can find peace with God. And then third, pray for those who abuse you. And on that note, I find this is, at least for me personally, the best thing that I can do. I have, when I feel most abused by others, tried to make a habit of asking God to lead my enemy to genuine repentance and to find favor with God. I ask that they would know the peace of sins forgiven and enter into the life of God and enjoy his many blessings. Again, I don't always know that I feel that way, but I find that if I simply obey Jesus on that point, my heart's at peace. One final note before we move to Jesus' application of the command. We should not assume from this that we do nothing to protect ourselves from those who want to harm us. Paul, as you'll remember, frequently appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. As but one example, when he had been illegally whipped in the city of Philippi, he immediately made it known that he was a Roman citizen and it was illegal for them to treat him in this fashion. See, in the same way, when we're abused, seek legal protection where it's available. You know, I've often heard of churches, you know, in countries where there is persecution or open hostility, and yet sometimes in those countries, there are legal rights available to those Christians. Make use of legal protection when it's available. But even so, we must practice love and not vengeance, not payback, but rather prayer for and blessings towards our enemies. We as Christians don't seek warfare with our enemies. We seek reconciliation. And so that's the basic command, love your enemies. Now, Jesus moves from that to examples of application of this command. And we have three illustrations of that followed by a summation. Let's look at each one of the three points in turn. First, one might have to deal with a person who strikes us on the cheek. And when we read this command, we do well to see this not as an act of violence, but rather as an insulting slap. This is not the person who strikes with a closed fist, but with the open hand. It's meant not to physically injure, it's meant to show contempt for someone. In some countries, you know, it might be throwing a shoe or turning your back on a person. It's meant as a statement of utter disdain, utter disrespect. How do you love in such a situation? By now, many New Year's resolutions have been broken, if not abandoned. Most of our best intentions don't survive the month of January. The cynic may suggest there is no use in making any resolutions, but that's not the Christian path. The Christian life is filled with intentions that are set despite our spotty track record. The solution is not to abandon our good intentions, but to persist by God's grace. On that note, if deepening your prayer life has been on your heart this year, then you'll want to request our latest booklet, 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers selected by Dr. John that span the 16th to 19th centuries. They reflect the language of that day, but its content is rich and effectively reflects the longing of our hearts in prayer. To request your free copy, Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
The slap that Jesus describes is not a physical attempt to harm. It's not like a punch in the face. And I make this point because I'm conscious how this teaching might be misunderstood and misapplied, resulting in great harm to some people. We should all be clear. If a woman, as one example, is being physically abused by her husband, she's not to allow him to continue physically abusing her. She should seek protection. Same is true of emotional abuse as well. This teaching of Jesus is not a call to subject oneself to abuse and to do nothing to defend oneself. I mean, such a teaching would be cruel and would give fuel to the fire for the abuser. And furthermore, I've spoken to people who work with young people who live in very violent and dangerous neighborhoods. They teach kids how to defend themselves because anyone who doesn't is quickly preyed upon by others. In such cases, these kids are taught not to be aggressors. And the point I'm making is that Jesus did not say that we couldn't defend ourselves. Instead, what's being referred to here is the insult, the word of condescension, the words of utter disdain. In such cases, says Jesus, if you're going to love your enemies, you're going to turn the other cheek, meaning you're not going to respond in kind. That gives the one who insults further opportunity to carry on, to be sure. But instead of responding in kind, we act with dignity, as well as offering an opportunity for the enemy to come to his or her senses and repent. Don't respond with insult to an insult. Let's take the second example or point of application that Jesus gives. Someone takes away your cloak. Sounds like theft. You know, on the surface, that seems to say that when someone steals, don't call the police. Leave your house wide open for people to steal all the more. I actually have never met anyone who does that. People tend to lock their doors. They call the police when they're in trouble. So imagine a Christian shopkeeper who, you know, when a shoplifter stole a dress out of his store, called the shoplifter back and offered a pair of shoes and a hat as well. I mean, once that word got out, the shop would be empty. The business owner would be bankrupt. Or think of a nation that would practice that policy. Outlaws would soon run the country. How are we to understand this seemingly impossible application? I mean, who would do this? And I think in understanding this, that we need to remember context. Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples who on account of their gospel witness have incurred enemies. Believers are subject to abuse. And what should they do? Well, they should be generous, not stingy. In Jesus' day, there was a form of teaching which some now refer to as deliberate rabbinic exaggeration. Like, for instance, later in this same sermon, Jesus will speak about the person who's trying to remove a speck out of someone's eye while they have a log in their own eye. Now, no one has a log in their own eye, but rabbis frequently deliberately exaggerated a situation in order to highlight a point. And for my part, this is how I understand Jesus here. When the enemies of our faith and our personal enemies seek to harm us, If there's a place where you can, in response, be generous to them, do it. That's what this teaching is about. Jesus is not teaching that we should open our homes to theft. Rather, if we've been harmed financially by an enemy, even in that extreme situation, don't withhold your hand from being generous to them if that opportunity should arise. The third and final example is when someone begs from us. Given the context, this is about our enemies, Jesus now imagines that the enemy who has sought to harm us has fallen on hard times. And when that occurs, he says, give to the one who begs from you. So imagine how an enemy, now fallen, 
is in a horrible position of begging from the very one that they've sought to persecute. What should the righteous do when the tables are turned? And Jesus says, you should give to them, help them out. And if they have harmed you by taking your goods in the past, don't demand them back. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. Jesus ends these three examples of this principle with a general rule that can be remembered by all. It sums up everything he's been saying. It's found in verse 31. As you wish others would do to you, so do to them. So imagine that your enemy has fallen on hard times. And then suddenly that very enemy seeks some blessing from you. What should you do? Well, here's what you should do. You should seek to love your enemy. Now, at this point in time, one can almost hear the snickers. Huh? Who would be such a schmuck to do that? You don't love your enemies. You teach them a lesson. If they steal from you, you empty their bank account. If they insult you, you devastate their reputation. If they fall on their knees begging you for mercy, finish them off. In this way, you teach everyone else never to monkey with you. Now, there are religions that teach this very kind of a principle. And might I add, people who practice this principle of devastating their enemies are at perpetual warfare. The war never ends. It goes on throughout their lifetime and then extends through to the lifetimes of their children and their grandchildren and beyond. But let's ask Jesus, why is it important for us to love our enemies? Tell us why it's so important. And to that, Jesus answers. And we find that answer in verses 32 to 36. And in fact, there are three answers. The first of them in verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Let's see if I can put that in my own words. It's called reciprocity. That is, responding to others as they have acted towards us. That's what everyone does. Look, if you become a member of an underground criminal enterprise, you're going to find that they love those who love them. The same is true of, let's say, a business person who's greedy. They reward those who reward them. They find ways to partner with like minds. And if that's what your religion teaches you, that's nothing. Every religion, every philosophy, every criminal, every unjust judge, as well as every con man this world has ever seen, practices that. There's nothing noteworthy in that. And if the life that Jesus offers is intended to lift us above the brokenness of this world, and if that life only offers you the same moral code that even the worst of sinners exercise already, well, that would be of little account. If we only love those who loved us then, if that were true, let's drop the pretense and simply admit that we have the same ethical standards as everyone else. And might I stop here and make the point of application. Some of us have never loved our enemies, and yet the way we talk about our enemies wants to portray that they are wicked and we are virtuous. And what blatant hypocrisy. All you've shown is that you're like your enemy. You're just as angry as they are, and you want to win as much as they do. You wish that you were winning and that they were losing, but that's no virtue at all. So that's the first reason that Jesus gives for loving our enemy. Let's look at the second one. It's found in verse 33. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. We move in this example from the example of virtue to the question of benefit. And Jesus wants us to consider the benefit of sinners who do good to those who do good to them and who pour out vengeance upon those who avenge them. 
Are they benefited, he asked. It's a very good question. And some of us think they are. We're convinced ourselves that blessing those who bless us is a win-win situation, and the reverse is a good defensive posture. Don't let anyone take advantage of you, says the sinner. Let me take you back to Proverbs chapter 1. I, I mentioned that passage earlier in this series. In the first chapter of that book, the wise father is directing his gullible young son. If sinners entice you, says the father, and if they say, let's lie and wait for someone's blood, don't you dare throw in your lot with them. And why is that? Because, says the father, in the end, you'll find that you're lying in wait for your own blood. In a dog-eat-dog world, in a world of reciprocity, in the end, no one is benefited. In the law of the jungle, everyone gets eaten in the end. I mean, what benefit, asked Jesus, is it if you act like a sinner? Are you elevated? Are you blessed? Are you nearer to God because of it? I think we all know the answer to that. The third reason for loving our enemies in verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Here's the question of credit. Do you think anyone owes something if you lend and then, having calculated the loan, you're well compensated? No, no one then is in your debt. You're paid in full. But if you're gracious and give expecting nothing in return, others may remember your kindness. And with that, Jesus ends this teaching on loving our enemies. Love your enemies, he says. Do good. Lend without expecting to be repaid. But lest you feel that in the process you're a martyr, think again. God in heaven sees, and you're not going to be a debtor to him. He remembers, he blesses those who are generous and loving and blessing and seeking the good of others. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I think it's true to say that forgiveness can be a tricky thing, and in some cases, we just don't feel like it. What should we do? Yeah, I... I <laughs> You know, especially when we've been deeply hurt, we don't feel like it. And so rather than concentrating on our feelings, let's just bend our knee and say, not my will, but yours be done, Heavenly Father, and let's do what he requires us to do. So, you know, I've made mention of the fact that we should pray for those who have become our enemies. I pray for them. I mean, make it a, you know, just a, put it on a piece of paper somewhere that when you're in prayer, that you're praying for your enemies. I mean, I think that's a great starting place. And when we do it often enough, we will find that we look for ways of blessing if that's within our power to do. Uh, so I, I think that's what we do. Concentrate not on our feelings. Do rather what Christ has called us to do. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca apps. For more information, give us a call at 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts.